Awesome. Well, welcome to Redemption Church, and welcome to our continuing study in a series that we have entitled Grace, right? We've just called it Grace. And this series is all rooted in the book of Ephesians, right? We're just kind of walking uh, verse by verse through that entire book because what we see in the context of that book is it is a book that is dripping, oozing, screaming, celebrating, uplifting the concept of grace. In fact, in the whole scope of the Bible, right, Old, New Testament combined, I would venture to say that there is no book more that is the center pin, that is the core of the Bible than the book of Ephesians. It is this theological but practical book. It really unpacks and expounds for us the full character of God, the heart of God, the good news of Jesus, this idea that grace is so radical it can save the worst of the worst, and grace is so powerful it can grow us into the full character of God. That's impressive stuff. And that's been Paul's heart in this book. It's this book where in one sense, again, he wants us to know here's the truth, so that then from that we know how to live. And the order is important, right? We need to know certain things before we do certain things. Which is hard for us sometimes because we're sometimes so ready to go and do that you just give me the bare minimums and I'm going to run and put it together. And yet Paul is a wise pastor who loves us deeply and wants us to understand, no, you have to know first who you are. You have to know first what God has done. You have to know first what the truth is. And when you really get that and you own that and it, it really has this grip on your internal person, man, that is going to deploy you to do things in a much more powerful way. Right? Not just saying, I want to get right to the business, but no, no, no. Understand who gives you the strength to get down to business. Who gives you the power and the might and the hope and the identity to see great and incredible things achieved. See, that's his structure. So in chapters 1 through 3, he says, here's what we believe as Christians. Here's our theology. In fact, in chapters 1 through 3, he doesn't give us any commands, really. He's just telling us, here's the truth, here's the truth, here's the truth, here's the truth, here's another truth. Lots of truths. We call them indicatives. But then when he gets to chapters 4 through 6, he says, now here's how we behave. Right? Here's how we conduct ourselves. Here's our practice. And from that, he's going to give all the imperatives, all the things that we're expected to do. Now, why this is important to us today is because today is the last message in the first half of the book. We're closing out chapter 3, and with that, we're closing out all the things Paul wanted us to know. Right? So that we know then what to go and do. So... He does this, this and I think probably one of the most important and profound ways possible. He doesn't simply tell us one last truth. He prays. For us to really get it, for us to really own all the truth he's talked about, he says, I'm going to pray that you get it. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. And we're going to be starting in verse 14. Now, as you're on your way there, I want to go ahead and clarify something about life, and it's very simple. Life is struggle. I mean, life is struggle. So much struggle at times. There are seasons where the struggle is so great, right? The finances are rough, the family's rough, our internal uh, makeup is rough, our emotions, whatever it is, that we have this tendency 
to spend a lot of time looking inward or downward or backward. Right? We just kind of ebb to those places when there's strain and strife and trial. But what I love about what Paul has been saying in Ephesians up to this point is he's saying you have this new life in Christ, right? It should shape everything about you so that you're not looking inward, downward, and backward, but you're looking outward and upward and forward. It's a whole new life perspective. And this is coming from a guy that, again, is struggling in his own life. He's imprisoned. He's sick. Uh, He's had people that have stabbed him in the back. He's got people that are actually trying to make his life in prison worse by going way out of their way to throw him under the bus, and yet he understands what it means to live a life outward, upward, and forward. And Paul knows what it's going to take to really keep that perspective. See, in our context, I'll tell you what we run to a lot to kind of keep ourselves looking upward, forward. We run to a lot of pep talks. Right? We want, run to a lot of pep talks. It might be uh, in the form of a, a book or in a feel-good movie or in music that lifts our spirits. Those are all forms of pep talks. The downside of a pep talk is that it wears off. Right? It can hold us for a day or for a season, but eventually the pep talk just doesn't have the legs to carry us forward. And Paul knows that in life we don't need more pep talks to face the challenges of life. What we really need is more prayer walks. Where we really get away with God and say, God, you know what? I need your strength. I need your might. I need your power. I need your focus. I need your perspective on the stuff of life so that I can go forward. I can have an outward, upward, forward progress in my life through you. See, that's why prayer is so central. Because the mysteries of life are always going to baffle us and trying to have mastery over things in life, that's always going to elude us. But Paul knows that prayer can handle all of that, both of those, everything. And so that's why he prays. He wraps everything up with this profound prayer. One of the most popular prayers of the Bible, praying. Now let me tell you why this is challenging uh, for us this morning. Um... I think at the core, it's hard because prayer isn't Christian sexy. It's not. It's just not Christian sexy. There's other Christian sexy. Helping the poor and the needy, that's Christian sexy. Right? Having cool, big productions and ministry, that's Christian sexy. Having great outings and big conferences and fantastic music, all of that is Christian sexy, but prayer, we struggle with this whole idea for a whole different set of reasons. Part of it is because, again, we love to just be told what to do so we can go do it. Where prayer doesn't feel like we're going and doing something, prayer feels like, let me get this straight, I'm going to stop and I'm going to just be still, I'm going to talk to God, that doesn't seem like I'm doing anything, I need to do something, so prayer is hard because we feel the need to do, not just be stationary. I think also prayer is hard for us as Christians because, especially American Christians, we suffer from prayer-induced ADHD and narcolepsy, right? So you go to a prayer group, and we go, it's going to be an hour. You're like, an hour? Dear Lord Jesus. Right? Or, Or just total ADHD. You know, like you can start quizzing each other. Hey, what did I just pray? I don't know, man. I was thinking about baseball, you know? Like, 
right? It just happens. And so we struggle with that environment. The other thing about prayer that is so hard for us as Christians is because, frankly, it doesn't meet a felt need always, right? So we have a class on parenting. A lot of people go to that because that's a felt need. Or we have a youth group event, and a lot of people go to that because it's a felt need. When we talk about prayer, suddenly it doesn't have this felt need deal, and not as many people want to show up to something like that because it's like, oh man, again, that's a lot of time. That's one hour, and we're all going to be sitting in a circle. My eyes are going to be closed. My head's going to be down and bowed, and I'm, I'm going to be praying. And wow, just That's not a felt need for me to go and do that. Right? So those are some of the reasons that we struggle. The other reason we struggle, I believe, with prayer real passionate, just anticipatory prayer is because we've seen an evolution in how we pray that has sort of increasingly detached us from really being able to focus on God. I mean, if you look at Protestant Christianity, we've seen this evolution of prayer. Prayer has changed for us over the course of time. In fact, the way we first started to pray, let's bring up this first picture, was very reverent. Right? Down before God, face down. God, we're going before you. I'm really starting to thin, by the way. <laughs> that is some perspective right there. All right. Thank you, Jesus. All right. So, that's how we started. You know, we're like, okay, well, let's, let's change. Let's evolve a little bit. So we went to the next posture of prayer. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to at least kind of, you know, if I have to spring up, because you never know, you gotta, maybe I have to move. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be so flat and, and, and out. I'm, I'm going to be on my knees, but I'm still going to be kind of bow before God. So that was kind of the next stage for us. And then we said, okay, well, let's, let's evolve this a little bit more. So we go to the third one, right? That's very holy looking. I'm still on my knees, right? I'm still before God. It's very much me having attention on him. That's what I do. But then as time went on, we hit the 20th century, and things changed a little bit, had a little bit more evolution. We're like, hey, there's a chair, right? I should put this chair to use, man. I mean, hey, it's there, right? I'm still, I got my head bowed. My, my legs are still flexed, at least, like I'm kneeling. It's close. This is pretty comfortable. But then we hit the 21st century, and we evolved a little bit further. Ah, yes iPhone in one hand, checking the stats, all right, coffee in the other, praying in between, right? I mean, this is sort of the evolution that we've gone through where to really take real, ample time to just stop everything and say, God, I want to know you. God, I want to seek you. God, I want to see you. God, I want to sense you. Man, that's some tough stuff for us to accomplish because we choose distraction. We multitask our environment, right? And so we sort of, by way of even posture, have lost the deeper emotional posture of saying, man, I, I, I want to connect with you, God. I want to know you in a way that you unleash your power. See, Paul knew this prayer life. Paul knew how unbelievably powerful prayer can be in the life of the Christian. And so after he says all this phenomenal truth in verse 14, he says, For this reason, right, for everything I have shared, for the fact that God has chosen and adopted and forgiven and redeemed and sealed and made his church and brought all the different conflicted parties into one and then we're a dwelling place of God by the spirit for all this he says man for all of this reason I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named 
See, this is a huge thing for Paul. Again, as I keep trying to encourage, as we read Paul in Ephesians, don't read him as some cold, callous theologian. This is a guy that is so overwhelmed that right here he buckles and goes to his knees. This is not the standard posture for a nice Jewish boy praying. Right? Just look at pictures of the Wailing Wall. You know what you're never going to see there? Nice Jewish boys kneeling. They all stand. They all stand. That is a holy posture in the Jewish tradition. So you typically would stand when you pray. The only reason you would go to your knees is if you are so utterly overwhelmed emotionally. You are so utterly impressed and impacted by what God is doing that literally you're weak in the knees and you just, you just go down. Right? That's, that's Paul. Right? He's buckling under the weight of the richness of God. I mean, that's where he goes. And I look at this and I go, man, I, I want that. I want that to be true. See, because I look at this and I go, man, there's this guy that so gets it. He can't help but just get weak and go right down. And, and, and I look at it and I go, man, that's sort of foreign to me. It's foreign. Like, like uh, the Christian faith is very intellectual and very uh, moral and, and, and very kind of kind of healthy to my life but is it so utterly overwhelming that i go i want that investment i want that ownership i want that thing well we should because paul he had it and so he just buckles he knows the power that is tapped in prayer he knows that the more we pray for God's presence and passion and protection and purpose in the context of prayer, he knows what that unleashes. He knows it. And my loving encouragement to us as a church is that we would be a place more and more that are saying, you know what, we're going to carve out the time, we're going to make it happen to the men of our church, men that we would lead our homes on our knees. That we would legitimately lead our homes on our knees. We'd be praying for our wife and praying for our kids and praying for their protection. Right? There's a lot of ways we try to protect our families. We have insurance and we lock the door and we have alarm systems. And some people have weapons. Make sure they can protect their family. And all of that, it can be, it can be good. But there's something much more sinister in play against your family. And something much more powerful to counteract that. Prayer. Women. Praying for your husbands, praying for your children, right? And, and not just keep them safe, keep them well, keep them protected, but even praying more deeply, God, may my husband know you in a powerful way. May he know you in a convicted way. May he know you in an overjoyed way. Give him strength in you. Jesus, protect my kids from all of the influences, and chiefly, may they be protected by being so passionate for you. That any lesser things just seem silly in comparison. See, that's the way to pray. In fact, that's what we see about Paul. Paul, in this prayer, reveals what he most cares about. And, and I've realized that in my own life. I, I've analyzed kind of my prayers over the course of time. And here, here's what prayer reveals. Prayer reveals what we most care about and what we most don't care about. And that's kind of the weird part, right? So what I pray about is obviously what I care about and what I fail to pray pray about i perhaps don't care about as much now there's some things that hey it's great to not care about it so you don't pray about it but there's some really big ideas that we fail to pray about that we should and because we don't it shows that maybe it's not as important in fact a lot of the content of this prayer should be the normative prayer of the christian but a lot of these things are not the things we pray for we pray for traveling mercies and that god would bless our food and 
to rescue us from situational dilemmas, or if you're in high school, oh, Jesus, please let that girl like me, right, whatever it is. And I'm not saying there isn't a time and a place for all those types of prayers, especially the let her like me, because I'm battling upstream, man, right? There's a time and a place. But boy, the prayer that Paul has here should be the daily prayer of his people. And so here's what it says. He says, man, I pray to the Father that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Man, I love this. I love this because it's a genius prayer. Notice what Paul doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray for a change in condition. He doesn't pray for a change in situation. He prays for character. He prays for a person to be changed. See, again, I look at my own prayers, and a lot of times I pray, hey, Jesus, if you could just rescue me from this, if you could just change that, if you could fix this thing, provide for this need, whatever it is. And again, I'm not saying there isn't a time and a place for that and that we shouldn't pray for that. But what I'm saying is there is a constant, more profound prayer, which is, man, shape my heart and character in the context of whatever comes my way. Let me be strong in you. Let me be strengthened with power through your spirit. That's the prayer. And here's why. Life is lived from the interior. Right? We know this. Most of what we face in life is an internal issue, not an external issue. The externals inform the internals, right? So if you're struggling financially, that's an external issue, but then it pushes on the internals. Now what we're dealing with is, well, how does the internal world respond? How does it react? How does it understand it? How does it see it? So if the internals aren't aligned under might, strength, and power of God, we have a financial problem, and it spikes anxiety, and it spikes fear, depression, uh, you know, whatever it is, right? Because, again, we ultimately live from the interior, right? Same thing with whether we have a problem with kids or job or our country, whatever it is, we're always living from the interior and so paul prays that man our interior person will be strong and powerful right through an inner character that his father fortified right that's what he says right that the father would grant according to the riches of his glory so we need this father fortified character something that we can't manipulate we can't engineer this this is the hardest part of this whole gig. The Christian life can only be engineered so far. We can obey to a certain degree. We can play by certain rules. But this deeper, driving, unaffected by condition stuff, only the Father can fortify that. Paul also refers to the Holy Spirit, these internal attitudes, not just inner character, but inner attitudes, these spirit-informed attitudes of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit. That's something that only really comes in the context of saying, God, work it out in me. Do it in me. See, we can all face the world differently. We can face it not merely in our own resolve or determination or will, but we can face it prayerfully asking god to strengthen asking the spirit to empower how we face things but this really does take every day saying god here's what i'm looking for from you here's what i need from you i i, I want to press in closer to you otherwise we're going to be left just chasing and hoping and waiting for something to grab hold 
So Paul prays, and he doesn't just pray, pray this for his own life, he prays this for others. And this should be our prayer too, uh, as every member of Redemption Church, right? We shouldn't just say, Jesus, may I be strong, may I be filled, may I be powerful in you. We should be praying, and I pray that for my whole church. I pray that people would know you in a way that is, again, way more than they ever thought possible. Because you can do those things, right? to be from the glory of God. It's to be from the power of the Father. It's to be in the strength of the Spirit. Paul goes even deeper. He says in verse 17, he prays these ways, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. See, I, I, I love this because... Um, We've seen these different truths in, in Ephesians, right? So in one sense, we're in Christ. That's our position, right? We were crucified with Christ on the cross, and because of that, we are in Christ. That's our new identity. That's our new position. It's 100% true. Here, Paul prays for the other side of this idea, which is as you are in Christ, you're still to seek and to look and to pray that you would have this full sense of Christ dwelling in you. Right, where it's kind of like, this is the truth, now how do you grow into the size of that truth? How do you internally get so connected to God that more and more this overarching truth that you are in Christ is felt in your daily life? Where you know, yeah, I know I'm in Christ and Christ is in me and I am growing closer and closer to the magnitude of what that means. Reminds me of this great scene in uh, the, the Narnia series where where Lucy is talking to Aslan after a long period of time, right? Aslan's the lion, the Christ image in the story. And Lucy sees him and she says, you're larger than you were last time. And he says, well, child, as you grow, so too I grow. Right? And it's this perfect image of the more we grow in Christ, the bigger Christ is. The more we see him clearly, the more immense he becomes in our minds and our eyes because we're being filled up with the fullness of Christ. Not just our position, but now our practice, our experience, right? Because what Jesus only wants to do is to dwell in our hearts. To really dwell. You go, well, wait a minute, I accepted Jesus and he lives in my heart now, right? True. Kind of. He does live in you, but he wants you to fully know what it means to have him live in you. Right? And, and that's a little bit of a question of, are, are, are we actually praying, like, make my life your home? Make my family, Jesus, your home. I, I, I find at certain intervals in my life, I treat Jesus more like a renter than an owner. Right? Where I'm like, oh man, Jesus, come on in, come on in. Oh, time for eviction. I need other things right now. And he says, no, I want to be at home in your life. I want to be at home in your heart. I want you to experience me in such a way that it really shapes your perspectives on life. How does this happen? How does he dwell in our hearts? Through faith, it says. Through faith. And faith is a tough gig. It just is. Just being candid, faith is hard. Here's why. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I don't like that. 
I want faith to be easier. I want faith to be simple. I want faith to be like, uh, like a, I don't know, like just like a snap-tight model. That'd be awesome. I don't even need glue. I want faith to be 101 basics, man. But it's hard. Faith is important. Faith must be sought. But faith also must be risked. And that's what I think makes it so hard, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, right? The assurance. We're not talking about, I hope, like, cross my fingers. Faith is the thing that says, you know what? I am certain of that which I have my hope in. Christ is returning. That's my hope. There is a world beyond this world that is more real than this world will ever be. That is my hope. It is this conviction that I have of things that aren't yet seen. I just know it's true. See, this is hard because here's what life does to us. Life drives us right to the edge, right? Life will always drive us right here to the very edge every time. And then we have to look at God and God says, all right, now that you're right at the edge, you have to take the step of faith. You have to go one more step than than it even seems possible or logical or would allow for. That's faith. See, in life, the way we exercise faith, when we get it right up to the edge, are crazy things like, you know what? When you've got an enemy in your life, somebody that's creating havoc for yourself, your kids, your family, whatever it is, faith says, all right, that's an enemy, and I'm going to treat them with love. I'm going to do good to them. I'm going to be kind to them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to ask God to bless them, even though they're my enemy. That takes faith. To believe that God will work it all out. It doesn't take any faith to retaliate. It doesn't take any faith to gossip. It doesn't take any faith to fight back. It takes a tremendous amount of faith to go that next step when you're at the edge. When life takes you to the edge and you say, all right, God, I'm going to obey you in faith. I'm going to love my enemy. That's a hard thing. It takes faith to say, I will not say anything bad about my ex. It takes a lot of faith to say, God, I'm just going to honor you. Instead of speculating, instead of characterizing, I'm going to let you handle it, God. It's hard. It's hard to be honest when you have an employer who's maybe asking you for dishonesty. And you have that step of faith that says, but I know the truth will set me free. I'm, I'm, I'm trusting you, God, in faith. It takes faith to keep investing into a hopeless marriage. Where you feel like, man, are they ever going to get it? Is it ever going to come around? Are we always going to kind of be like, like, like roommates that just fight all the time? Is it ever going to be different? takes a lot of faith to say, but God, I'm, I'm going to be the wife you want me to be. I'm going to be the husband you want me to be. I'm going to play by the rules you've given in faith, believing you to act. It's hard to wait for God to bring the right person or the right house or the right job or the right school. It's a whole lot easier to try to take things into our own hands, do it in our own strength and might, resolve everything in our own power. But that's not faith. Faith requires us to step into places we wouldn't normally think of stepping otherwise. See, Paul knows that's what we need. He knows it's what we need. But he doesn't just put it out there like, hey man, so figure it out. Square it up, do it right. He says, man, I want you to have this kind of faith. I want you to sense that kind of power from God. I want you to have that kind of strength. But then he motivates it. 
And he motivates it in a great way. He reminds us of who we are and what God has done to us and for us. He says in verse 17, that you, right? He says, I pray all of this. And then he goes on to say, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is the motivator. He says, man, I want you to have all of this, but I want you to be motivated by the truth that you are loved. You are loved with a radical, crazy, infectious, life-transforming love. That is the love that God has for you. Now, here's the thing about this that I read, and I go, man, that is true. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I know the song. But you know, here's the thing about Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's 50% of what it means to really understand love. At least love from God. The other 50% comes through prayer, through proximity, through relationship. Right? If you want to truly feel the love of God, not just think the love of God, but feel the love of God, to know the truth of it and the sense of it, means that we are people of the word. We are, we're people of the word. Because it tells us the truth. But then we take that truth and we go to God and we go, God, help me to sense what is true. Help me to be truly motivated by what is true. Because it's love when it is both a commitment and a, a, a feeling or an emotion. When those two things are tethered together, that is where it is a powerful motivator. Powerful. I mean, when you have that kind of love, sense of love and truth of love coupled together, man, that motivates a man for a woman at a whole different level. It motivates a soldier for his country at a whole different level. A parent for a child at a whole different level. Not just duty, not just responsibility, not just loyalty, but this duty, responsibility, and loyalty that is bound up in a sense of feeling true love. I know this in my relationship with Ellen. Right? So if, if, if there's seasons where, you know what, we're a little kind of out of sync with one another, and, and we get into those modes of, I'm loving you and you're loving me because we made these vows, and it's commitment, and it's loyalty, and it's fidelity, but it's not emotion and passion. You know what? We can get through those seasons, but they're not the same. They're not the same as when I go, man, I think it, and I feel it. I dig this woman. She's awesome. When I'm there in those places, man, our marriage is just top-notch. It is awesome. Why? Because I'm fully engaged in the concept of love. Not just, I know love, but I know it intimately. Not just know about, not just know of, but no, man, I, I know. I know. That's very different. For example, I remember uh, when I was, I, I think it was probably in junior high, and I, I had this crazy idea. I knew how I could get the chicks, man. I knew how I could get the chicks. You want to know what I thought my sure-proof way was? Learn to juggle, right? Girls love jugglers, right? So I go, I buy a book, has a VHS cassette. There's a whole age that doesn't even know what I'm talking about. All right, so I get this VHS cassette that teaches me how to juggle. And it's very simple. It's very basic, right? You just throw this one up, and then that one up, and then that other one up. 
That's it. It's not hard. On paper, piece of cake, right? They always have you even start off, right? You go like, all right, start with just one. God, genius. Hello, ladies, right? So then they go, all right, go to two. And you just get those going. And you're like, this is a piece of cake. But then you got to get the three, the jump, right? And, and, and here's the thing. Even though on paper it's so simple to know about how to juggle it's so basic to understand the mechanics of how you do it. There's something very different when you take it for a test spin, right? When you actually try. That was okay. Hey, looky there. It's been a while. All right. I landed Ellen with this, and that's all I needed. All right, so... But that's the difference between uh, knowing of, knowing about, and actually knowing, right? I can understand the rules, I can understand the mechanics, I can understand the physics, but it doesn't all come together until you really begin to work with it and try it out and experience it, and there's this intuition that takes over in this context, and that's the place that we need to be when it comes to really knowing the love of God. Again, not just having highlighters that highlight the verses. No, something more profound where we go, man, I just sense it, I know it, I've been there, I've seen it, I've interacted with it. That's what it means to know. That's what Paul prays that we know in that way. And just one Sunday at church a week and maybe being in a regroup, that alone isn't going to be enough to really interact with what it means to know. To know. It's where we have to be praying a lot. Man, God, show me your heart. Show my soul your love, right? In fact, Paul goes on to pray. Not just that we'd be rooted and grounded in love, that we would know the depth. He says, but that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. Right? Again, as there is one positional truth that, man, you are, you are fully loaded with God. You are. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. That's a truth. And then you begin to experience that. In the same way, God has taken up residence in your life. He has. He says, man, I fully am living in you. But you need to then be filled up with the way that I'm fully living in you. Right? That's the heart behind all of it. And so again, our prayer is to say, man, fill me up. Fill me up. And part of that is just having an internal resolve, a mental uh, dexterity that says, you know what? What do I really want? What level do I want? Because all of us are like a balloon. We're all like balloons, right? So we get saved. That's our position. Our position is you're saved. You're like this great smiley balloon. But then we have to start saying, all right, God, fill me up. Fill me up, right? So your fullness in me. Sometimes we settle for that. Like, all right, that's, that's full enough. Now, here's the great thing about how we're built. We have this unbelievable elasticity in God. But sometimes we go, this is, this is good. You can, I'm happy. I, I, I'm, I'm full, and you are full, but you're not as full as you can, could be. But what that takes is going to an outside source. You can't fill yourself up. You have to go to one greater than yourself and say, fill me more. And so we pray. Fill me more. 
We have to pray more. <laughs> Fill me more. We keep doing that. Here's the thing. If we stop doing it, here's what happens. He's so sad. That is what happens. Right? So this prayer then, that's why I say it is a daily prayer. Fill me. Fill me. Fill me. And God will keep filling. He will keep expanding you. You will expand and expand and expand. And as you become bigger, God becomes bigger in your eyes. If you have a small God right now, and you wonder what your God can really do. I know on paper you know he can do anything, but what you really believe he can do in your life. Now, the more you are praying, God, do this list of things in me, the more God gets bigger, so you get bigger, you get fuller, because God is fuller in your mind. That is a promise. That is a guarantee. But we have to be praying, oh, that I may be filled with the fullness of God. Fullness. Paul then says in verse 20, now to him who is able. If you're sitting there this morning saying, Matt, you know what, that's all great. I've never experienced that. Or I experienced that once. It was 1987. I went to a Petra concert. That was it. Like five of you know Petra. That scares me too. You go, but man, that's not possible. That's not doable. Paul says, oh, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within us. I love this, man. I love this. This is an anchor of conviction for the soul. He says, man, you can know the love of God so powerfully, the fullness of God so profoundly, the presence of Christ so unshackled in your life that, man, you will realize he can do far more, far more. You can act from that love and obey from that love and respond from that love and live from that love. He is able. He is able. Say that with me. He is able to do more. See, we have to really get ourselves believing that. To really getting ourselves believing that. And again, I know like on paper we say, oh, well, God's so big. He could rock, make a rock so big. You know, we get into all that. I'm talking about in your personal life, my personal life, to say that he is able to do far more. Now, this is a two-edged sword because just because he's able doesn't always mean that he will. doesn't always mean that he will. We might ask, we might seek, we might knock, we might re request things of God. And he says, you know what, no, man, i got a plan. I know what's going on far better than you do. I'm not going to do that. And when you pray about something to God and he's not doing what you've asked, don't go like, oh, nope, see, he's not listening. Oh, he doesn't care. He's uninterested. No, God always cares. He's always interested. He's always engaged. But he may have a plan that you don't fully get. And here's what we then pray when we don't see God executing what it is we've requested. You ready? We say, God, give me wisdom. Give me patience. Give me insight. Because clearly you are up to something I don't understand fully. And I want to look to you. I want to look to you. That's what we need to do. Just because he is able doesn't mean he always will. And when he doesn't, we go, man, help me through this. Help me to see him. The other edge of this sword is that there is the truth that sometimes we don't see, we don't experience, frankly, because we, we don't approach prayer properly. We see in James chapter 4 where he says, you know what? You, you don't have because you don't ask. Or when you ask, your motives are all messed up. It's 
It's all about you way more than it's about God or others or, you know, your, your motivations are revenge or your motivations are, you know, whatever it is that, that isn't quite in alignment with what God has. So sometimes we don't have because we don't ask or we ask poorly. He goes into James 5, he says, you know what, the prayer of a righteous person avails much. Sometimes our prayers don't have the potency they could because, frankly, our life is not aligned with Christ in such a way that righteousness can fuel them. I think about 1 Peter chapter 3 where it talks about husbands, and if they don't dwell with their wives with understanding and honor, uh, their prayers are hindered. So there's things in the Bible where, again, we have to have the right conditions, and we need to be prayerful and faithful and desperate and asking and, 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 and really seeing a life that aligns with that. That's the heart and the essence of prayer. Of saying, God, I just want to know you, seek you, depend on you, rely on you, and to give you glory throughout everything. Throughout everything. In fact, right now, I want to bring the band up. And as they're coming up, I, I want to get a set for this desire to encounter God, right? Because again, I think a lot of what we're talking about in this whole idea of prayer is what is it that we anticipate? I mean, what do we really expect? Are we expecting God to show up in our lives in a big way? Are we seeking desperately to experience God in a powerful measure? Do we want that encounter? Do we invite him to come to be glorified by us? See, this is why Paul closes by taking us right back to the essence of chapter 1. Where in chapter 1, he says, you know what? You were chosen. You were predestined. You were adopted. You were forgiven, redeemed, sealed, and loved for the praise of his glorious grace. He takes it right back to the fact that we as a church and we as a people are saved to praise God. That's why he says in verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, there's two kinds of churches in the world. There are churches that are all about us. So you go every week and they're going to tell you how to have a better marriage and better finances and better kids and better relationships and a better job and a better house and a better whatever. And it's all about us. Here, now, our stuff, our wants, our needs. The other kind of church is a church that is all about Him. It's all about His glory. It's all about His goodness. It's all about His power. It's all about His grace. It's all about His salvation. It's all about His presence. Redemption Church, it's not about us. It's just not about us. It is all about Jesus. We have that plastered everywhere for a reason. It's right here. It's for His glory. It's not about us. And so I challenge us to not give in into lesser joys or pleasures or wants or wills of this world. To find your purpose, your fullness, your happiness, your peace in God's glory in this generation and laying down a foundation for future generations. So let us glorify God when we are refreshed and when we are trained. When we are elated and we are discouraged in our poverty and in our opulence, in our grief, our celebration, our trial, our reward, in the brightest day and in the darkest night, when all hope seems lost or victory seems assured, we glorify Him. We glorify Him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. We glorify Him.